Welcome back to the Soch Podcast, where nothing human is alien to us. I'm Major Tom Fox, your host, and for this episode, I'm handing over the reins to Major Steve Taylor from the American Politics STEM for a fascinating discussion on the upcoming election. We're extremely grateful to Tom Bevan from Real Clear Politics for joining us and sharing his analysis of what he's seeing in the polls and his advice about how to consume polling information in such a heated election year. Without further ado, on to the conversation. Good morning and welcome to the SOCH podcast where nothing human is alien to us. I'm Major Steve Taylor and I teach American politics and political thought as an assistant professor in the Department of Social Sciences. Today, we're honored and excited to be joined by our special guest, Tom Bevan. Tom is the president and co-founder of Real Clear Politics. Real Clear Politics is a political news site and polling data aggregator dedicated to providing its readers with balanced, nonpartisan analysis on the most important news and policy issues of the day. In addition to overseeing RCP's editorial staff and regularly writing for various publications, Tom is frequently featured as a political analyst on Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, and the BBC. Hello, Tom. Good morning. Good morning, Steve. Thanks for having me. Also joining us today is Dr. Scott Lindbacher. Scott is an assistant professor of American politics in the Department of Social Sciences and the deputy director of the Social Research Lab. Hello, Scott. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me. We are also excited to bring in two of our cadet leaders from the Domestic Affairs Program, which is West Point's American Politics Club. This is now the second time we've had cadets on the podcast, and we hope to continue to get cadets engaged with future guests. Pedro Santiago Bonilla is from San Juan, Puerto Rico. He's an American politics major, and he hopes to become a military intelligence officer in the next few months. Good morning, Pedro. Hello, everybody. Thanks for having me. And Luke Stoner is from Pottsville, Pennsylvania. He's an economics major, and he hopes to become an Army helicopter pilot. Hello, Luke. Hi, sir. Excited to be here. And with that, let's dive into it. Scott, our first segment is going to focus on polling. Would you like to lead off with that? Sure thing. That sounds great. Um, I really want to talk about sort of two broad themes. One is just how to consume information in 2020 with the backdrop of the polls, you know, in scare quotes, getting it wrong in 2016. But before getting there, I really wanted to give you a little space, Tom, to introduce Real Clear Politics and what specifically your role is within the organization. Well, great, Scott, thanks. I'll give you sort of the brief version of our story. So the interesting thing about uh, Real Clear Politics and, and our story, I co-founded the site 20 years ago with John McIntyre, who was a, a classmate of mine from Princeton University. Uh, John was an economics major. He, and at the time was a trader. Um, we were living in the same house in Chicago. I was a, a history major and was in the advertising industry. So we, we were not, um, we were just political junkies, just amateurs. We were not involved in politics or journalism professionally. And in the sort of mid nineties uh, was the first, first time that you really were able to, to wake up in the morning and read what was being written in the LA Times and the New York Times on the same day. And that was sort of our aha moment. And we thought, this is great. Why don't we create a space for people like us and bring together all this great information, aggregate all this great information around politics, policy, and elections. And so that was the, that was the genesis for Real Clear Politics. Shortly thereafter, we conceived of the notion of the RCP average, right? The polling average. We were the, the sort of creator of those, the inventor of the poll average. And the, and the concept was very, very simple, which was, you know, you'd get a poll, there were a lot of polls that were coming out. You know, you get a poll saying one thing one day, saying something that looked completely different the next day. And, and sort of where's the truth? And the truth is somewhere in the middle uh, was the idea. <clears throat> and so the, and the, the polling averages have been really become, I, I think, a very useful tool um, and metric for political professionals and, and even amateurs to do two things. Number one, to sort of have a snapshot in time. Uh, of where all of the polls are, the ones that have been in the field in a sort of contemporaneous period of time, and then also to track trends over time uh, in a lot of these races. And, and we do that, obviously, for horse race polls around election time, but even during non-election periods, we're tracking metrics like the president's job approval, like the question that pollsters ask, is the country headed in the right direction or is it off on the wrong track? We track um, certain big pieces of, of legislation, such as we track the uh, Affordable Care Act and whether people were in favor of that or opposed to it. We're currently tracking uh, you know, coronavirus and the president's handling of that issue. So 
We do, a, a lot of people have come to know us through our, our election poll averages, but we, we're also doing that, you know, tracking a few different metrics all the time. Thank you very much. That's great. I think it's probably a, a good launching point then to maybe talk about the different polling houses that have accumulated over the last couple of decades, where um, now there seems to be no lack of polls coming in on a daily basis through this election. And so I'm curious uh, how you differentiate the different polling houses and what sort of standards you apply to include a poll in your average uh, when you're presenting that. Yeah, so a couple of there are a couple of different ways to attack that. We have seen over time, and there are a lot of polling operations, and there are polling operations that sort of pop up every cycle. Um, and I think the groups have gotten very good at at uh, trying to use polling in some cases to manipulate public opinion about different races and et cetera. So our metrics are sort of simple. We only include polls uh, that are publicly available, right, and are from reputable outfits. Um, we do not include any polls that are taken by uh, campaigns uh, or by any, uh, you know, interest groups. So we'll get polls that are taken by certain interest groups, and we don't include this. We do include polls by Democratic-leaning firms like PPP out of North Carolina or Republican firms like Trafalgar Group or, or, or uh, some of these other uh, polling operations, as long as they're not for a campaign. We've also seen at the national level, uh, one of the things that's been a big debate in the polling industry is, is you know, as pollsters have adapted from landlines to cell phones to now uh, online polls and panels and, and those sorts of things. We have not, we typically do not include any online polling um, unless, uh, and we started doing this last cycle, unless they're paired with and sponsored by a sort of major media outlet. So, for example, I think last time around we used NBC News, used SurveyMonkey, which is a polling organization. We would not use SurveyMonkey uh, sort of on their own. But when they paired with NBC News, you know, we have Reuters Ipsos this time around and some other groups. So that's one of the determining metrics. Um, and typically, if we haven't heard of a pollster um, or they're polling, uh, you know, a state for the first time, for example, that always is an immediate red flag and we'll reach out to the pollsters and we'll talk to them and, and ask them about their methodology, ask them about their history, ask them about um, all of those various things before we would ever include them uh, in our in our averages. So with it, regards to the polling standards that you guys look at, in the past when polls came in that were maybe potentially unfavorable for a particular campaign or candidate, they would push this notion of unskewing the polls or looking mm -hmm. under the hood at what's going on within that. Um, do you take any efforts in including that in the average or looking at when they disclose information about, you know, they had a weird sample that they drew? Does that factor into the decision in the aggregate? Not not typically. Um, you know, there have been instances where pollsters have, you know, they've, they've canceled polls when they thought they got a bad sample. There have been some instances like that over time, but for the most part, you know, most media organizations will, are going to release their polls, even if it is uh, a, a, an outlier, as they say, and it's clearly different from every every other result that other pollsters have gotten. So, no, we do not. Uh, that doesn't factor into, you know, our thinking in terms of if, you know, the, the numbers are the numbers and, and we put those in the average. I mean, one of the reasons that we we did, you know, came up with a polling average in the first place, I'll just give you a great example. So we had a poll released. Uh, earlier this week from IBD tip, right, national poll had the race at three points, Biden leading by three points. And then we just got a poll from CNN this morning that showed, you know, Biden leading by 16 points nationally. So who's right? Is it a three point race? Is it a 16 point race? Or is the truth that, you know, given the margin of errors and all those things that it's perhaps somewhere in the middle? Um, and, and that's the benefit, really, of, of the average. Obviously, the Trump folks are going to grab onto the three-point you know, number and say, this race is really, really close. And, and you know, Democrats are going to jump on to the 16-point number and say, you know, this race isn't close at all. Um, but I think we have right now, I think, 11 polls, maybe 12 polls in our national average that have been taken over the last two weeks. So that's a pretty good size group uh, you know, of, of data that we can look at. And, and on average, Biden's leading by about 9%, which seems, you know, if you take you take all those polls, that's the result. That's sort of the genius of, of the poll average. Uh, it sort of smooths out any, any idiosyncrasies. And even if you do have an outlier in there, 
Um, it, it doesn't, when you've got 11 or 12 poles in there, it, you know, it doesn't move the average, but, you know, a tenth of a percentage point or something. Now, the problem is two things. Number one, national polls, we don't have a national election, right? So those are, they're, they're worth something, but not much. And when you get down to the state level, typically we don't have 11 or 12 polls uh, taken over a two-week period. In, in some battleground states, right, like Florida, North Carolina, the ones that, um, that's where a lot of the polling is being done. And so we have we have some decent numbers there. And obviously, the more data you have, um, you know, I think the more confident you can be that th those numbers are, are, you know, accurate. There's only been a, there have been a couple instances, obviously, where all the pollsters have gotten it wrong. And, and there's been sort of a, you know, a real uh, pollster error that ended up, uh, you know, shocking people. There were there's a little bit of that in 2016. We can go into that more if you want, Scott. But um, the example that springs to mind, there were a couple examples. One was in 2008 when Barack Obama left, you know, won Iowa and headed off to New Hampshire and was leading in all the polls by not an insignificant amount, six, seven, eight, nine points. And then if you remember, you know, that guy stood up at the Hillary Clinton rally with the, the sign that said, iron my shirt, you know, and she kind of teared up. And, and next thing you know, she went on to win, I think, by three points. I and mean, it was a pretty significant victory. One of the issues with that, though, was that there were no pollsters in the field in the final 24 hours of that race to catch that late shift that took place. Um, that's something that, you know, happened to a certain degree in Wisconsin as well. The last, the Marquette University Law School poll there that had Hillary Clinton winning that uh, race by six points, and it's sort of considered the gold standard, was, I think, completed almost a week before the, the election took place. So when we get down and, and, you know, if you go even further down to, to like, a, you know, pulling a house race, it gets really, it gets really tough. So, um, but by and large, um, you know, I think that the more data we have, the, the better off we are in terms of analyzing these, these races and the shifts in the races. No, that's great. And I, I think within Wisconsin in 2016, I think Marquette Law was maybe the only pollster in town even. I think they might have been the only people polling. And the two or three previous ones had like a plus two or a plus three race. So they could have just drawn a particular sample that was lopsided as well, in addition to the time gap between when the poll took place and the election itself. Um, before we get to 2016, I, I do have one question that sort of relates to polling trends that's that we are observing now. Uh, you, you referenced the, the CNN poll that came out today and in an effort to not be sort of uh, usurped by whatever current events are going to break over the coming days. I'm gonna I'm gonna frame this generically. Um, within your polling aggregate, what would you say you needed to see in terms of a bump to say an October surprise had some sort of outcome that shifted in the election? Because one thing that's been a feature of this cycle has been remarkable stability. And so, what sort of percentage point change in your aggregate would you say that maybe attitudes had shift and we've moved away from sampling error? That's a great question. I mean, I've never really sort of approached it like that. I've just looked at the uh, at the trends to see, uh, you know, where where the movement is. And and if I see a little bit of movement um, in the in the average, um, then that indicates to me that perhaps there's something going on. And if you see that trend continue, you know, I think Whenever you see the average move, again, single polls can move the average, especially if you're in a state where you've only got a handful of polls, three or four, perhaps. Um, but in a state like Florida, for example, where we've got a number of polls, I guess just a few days ago, Joe Biden's lead there was was one percentage point. It's now over two, approaching two and a half. That signals to me that there has been movement in that state in his favor just in the last you know seven days or so. Um, if we see that move back uh, over the, you know, the next couple of weeks. Um, so I don't, there, there isn't a particular number that I look at where I say, aha, now it's significant. Um, I just sort of follow the follow the trends and the average, because, again, you know, you can get a poll uh, like uh, the ABC, ABC News Washington Post poll that came out, I think, a week ago now. or It's so hard to keep track of the days because <laughs> they just all blend into one another, but showed, you know, Trump leading by four points in Florida. Right. It was at odds. With, we had a couple of polls that had tied and a couple of polls of small Biden leads. But but suddenly it's, you know, um, and that kind of moved the average a little bit. Well, you know, was that an outlier? Was that something that, you know, I, I always want to see 
confirmation of a, of a trend. I always want to see a second poll to, to sort of confirm and verify that, yes, in fact, uh, you know, Trump is, uh, is, is leading there. And, you know, you get in a situation where when these in these close battleground states at the at the end, you know, the final round of polls before Election Day, you may have a situation where you've got, you know, a couple polls showing Biden with a lead, a couple polls showing Trump with a lead, a couple polls showing a tie. I mean, and, and that's when it's I mean, it absolutely is a, a true, true toss up. Uh, let's let's pivot then to a, a feeling that I think many have right now, which is sort of a general excitement with the idea of their candidate leading, but the trepidation of looking in the mirror one election cycle to 2016 and the narrative that the polls misfired and got something incorrect. I was wondering if you could speak to one sort of your assessment of 2016 and where the polls were more or less right or more or less wrong. And then also within sort of a lens of 2012, have we updated and learned enough that the polling averages and the polls that you see out there give you confidence that they're an accurate snapshot of what we can expect yeah. on election day? Yeah, so great question. So let's start with 2016, because I get this a lot. I speak all around the country, and this is like usually the first question. In fact, I get asked this so often, I, I usually just, just tackle it before being asked in my presentation, right? I tried um, to play boy. Yeah, no, I appreciate <laughs> it. Uh, look, my, my contention is, you know, you go back and you, you do a sort of a thorough look at the data, in 2016, and, and the polling wasn't that bad. Certainly at the national level, our final average was 3.3%. Hillary Clinton won by 2.1%. That is more accurate at the national level than, than you know, two of the three previous cycles. Um, so the national polls were, were pretty darn good. You look at some of the states, some of the states were absolutely spot on the averages, uh, you know, Virginia, for example, a couple others. Um, and then you look at some of the, the states, when we talked about Wisconsin, I'll get to that in a second, but when it comes down to it, if you look at our final electoral map, right, uh, the day of the election, day before the election, I think uh, we had Donald Trump, our averages had him winning Florida. He was winning North Carolina. We had him winning Nevada, which he did not win. Um, we had him losing in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, our final average. But the final poll that we put into our average in Pennsylvania, had Trump leading. Final poll we put into our average in Michigan had Trump leading. The final average in Pennsylvania overall was was less than two percentage points, right? Clinton's lead was under two percentage points. And we had Clinton winning in our electoral college map based on those averages, but like it was really close. I forget what it was, uh, 272 to 266, something like that. Trump only needed to flip one state. He ended up flipping three. So just by just by laying it out that way, that was a very competitive election. I think if you were just looking at, you know, if you just handed that map to someone and said, you know, analyze this election, here are the numbers, they'd say, wow, this this is this is pretty close. This could go either way. You know, it's very competitive. The the problem is that is not how it was portrayed to the American public. And and so my contention is the polls weren't nearly as bad as the pundits were, because in the final six to eight weeks of that race, you could not turn on your television or your computer or your radio without having some, you know, quote unquote expert telling you um, with and, and some of them with this sort of, you know, faux degree of statistical certainty, right, that it was a ninety nine point two five six eight percent chance that Hillary Clinton had this election in the bag. And these were not insignificant people, right? Sam Wang from Princeton University, David Pluff, Obama's former campaign manager, was on, I think, ABC News in September and, you know, was asked what, you know, what percentage do you give Hillary Clinton of winning this election? He said 100 percent. So, so people were led to believe that, and I, listen, you could certainly look at the data and say, okay, she's got a three-point lead nationally, and she's up in these battleground states, you know, this is trending in her favor. Like, you could certainly construct the idea that, that Hillary Clinton was going to win that election from the data. But there was other data, right? Again, it, it, the problem was pundits sort of filtered the data through their preconceived narrative of what this election was, right? Donald Trump is a, a, a joke. He's an outsider. Like, he's never going to be able to do this. People hate him. But if you if you were open to, to looking at all the data and kept an open mind about, uh, I think, the election, I, one example that, that I pointed out, I'll, I'll give you, um, is the generic congressional ballot, right? That's the question that pollsters ask. If the election were held today, um, who would you vote for, the Republican or the Democrat? No names attached. So in the middle of October, I think it was about October 13th or something, the Democrats had a six point lead, 
right? Over six point lead in that metric, uh, which we track on real clear politics in our, in our RCP average. On by election day, uh, it was under one percentage point. So you had a big move toward Republicans in the generic congressional ballot, which you know should have signaled to people that, hey, something's going on here. And, and suddenly the public's feeling better about Republicans overall. Um, it wasn't necessarily tied to directly to Donald Trump, but it, it was a piece of evidence that, you know, if you were looking at that, you should have said, wait a minute, hold on a second. What's going on here? That was a pretty significant move, right? Six points in an average over a course of, of you know, three weeks, basically. Um, and so, I, you know, was there a miss in, in Wisconsin? Yes. And, and we talked about that. One of the reasons for that is because we didn't have a lot of polling there. But look, I mean, the Trump campaign, they thought they were going to lose. They pulled out of Wisconsin, you know, the, the DNC, the RNC, everybody left Wisconsin. They didn't they didn't foresee. Um, and I think the biggest thing uh, in retrospect that that pollsters missed, right, was this, this pretty dramatic shift among uh, non-college educated white voters in some rural areas, which some of whom had voted for Obama in 08 or 12 or both, uh, who, who shifted pretty hard toward toward President Trump. And in a state like Wisconsin, that's that is heavily white and, and has a lot of those types of voters. Um, you know, I think Trump overperformed his polls by about seven, seven and a half points. I do think now have the have the have the pollsters solved those problems? Can we have more confidence in the in the polls this time around? My qualified answer is yes, but I, there are some pollsters who are still not waiting for education, um, which worries me. I, I do think there is still there is still a chance that Donald Trump could overperform his final poll numbers in some of these states. For example, uh, if you go back through, and I did this the other day, just sort of as a thought exercise, went back through this, these top six battleground states to see how, how he far he had overperformed. And it was like, he actually, of the six, he underperformed in only one state, it was Arizona. He was, uh, I think the final polls there were like four and he finished at three and a half or something like that. But in Florida, he overperformed by a, a point. In North Carolina, it was like two and a half. Um, uh, Pennsylvania was like 3.6 or something, all the way up to seven and a half in Wisconsin. So if you apply those just for the sake of argument, say he's going to overperform in those same states by those same amounts, given where our averages stand right now, he'd lose all those states because um, the lead in Florida is like two points. So we're getting to the point where Biden has, we have enough data and Biden has a big enough leads in these states that you would have to have massive poll error. Donald Trump would have to massively overperform to, to you know, have, have all these pollsters wrong for him to win enough states to win the election. Um, is it possible? Yeah. Is it likely? I don't think so. But, but I do lose a little bit of sleep over it. <laughs> I, I think uh, most people have just anxiety around this election in general, yeah. where, where where the anxiety comes from varies. But in, by and large, I think most people share the same sort of uh, an anxious feeling about how this is all unfolding over the last month. Yeah. And the, so the other thing, too, that that, you know, about and, and this stuff was non-scientific. Right. But, you know, you you saw in 2016 you saw the yard signs you saw the crowds you saw the i mean everybody has an anecdote i think from the 2016 election of of how you know they knew a, a family member a you know friend a co-worker who who they never really expected to be a trump voter and and they were shocked to learn that they were going to vote for trump my, my i have one of those stories and that's when it was in september i was in new hampshire for a, a political event and it was a the guy was like he wasn't an Uber driver, but he was a chauffeur type, you know, um, and was taking me from the airport to St. Anselm's College and just started talking to me about politics. And and he was a Pakistani Pakistani immigrant, you know, who came to the country 30 years ago. He was ostracized from his job, his workplace after 9-11. He worked in a factory. So he ended up starting this company. He had a health issue, you know, that he was really worried about, like a heart complication. And and so I, I I mean I just assumed he was going to vote for Hillary Clinton right I said so you know just kind of out of courtesy oh so who are you going to vote for he said Donald Trump all the way and I thought holy Moses something's going on here <laughs> and and you do see some of those echoes right you see the boat parades you see the crowds you see people standing outside in the rain for 24 hours to go to Trump rallies and so you know his his voters are certainly energized and you don't get the sense that there's that same level of enthusiasm. 
for Joe Biden on his side. Now, there is enthusiasm on that side to vote against Trump, negative partisanship, right? But is that is that enough? Is that so, you know, there are reasons, I think, for the Biden folks, even though the polls say they're way ahead to, to still be anxious. Yeah, for sure. So I, I'm going to ask one last question before we throw it over to the cadets. Uh, and it's sort of shifting gears a little bit to something else Real Clear Politics does, which is provide news aggregation as well as editorial aggregation. And I'm, I'm curious how different sets of information make it to the through your editorial process to reach sort of or reach a level that would be worthy of being featured on your website? So I, great question. And thank you for asking, Scott. I, I should have mentioned this before. It's like this is one of the things that we do, right, especially in um, during election season, but every day. I mean, our feature is our front page and, and it is a compilation of what we consider sort of the best of the best uh, of of commentary, news, opinion, analysis regarding politics, policy elections. And so the short answer to that is that, you know, we're pretty old fashioned when it comes to that stuff. We get up and 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 we read things. We don't, there's no algorithm. There's no, it's, it's, it's a pretty old school process. Um, I mean, we have some, you know, tools that help us sift through content, but at the end of the day, we have, there is an editor who is reading that content and making an editorial judgment about, uh, you know, what whether it's going to go on the page or not. And and I still, quite honestly, I still get up and do it a couple times a week myself because I really enjoy it, um, even though I've been doing it for 20 years. Um, and it helps keep me informed and helps keep me sort of on top of of the news and what people are writing and thinking. Um, and I always tell people so, putting the front page together at real clear politics every morning is like, it's like waking up and, and you're making a stew, but you don't know what ingredients you're going to have. Right. And you're looking for just the right amount of spice and, you know, sweet and savory and all that. And, you know, our commitment to our readers is that we're going to search, you know, far and wide, and we're going to bring them sort of the best commentary and opinion across the political spectrum. So you're going to see, you know, you're going to see liberals on there. You're going to see conservatives. You're going to see, uh, centrists. You're going to see, you know, we try and capture, you know, the the issues of the day. Right now, it's pretty much all horse racing. It's just all, you know, there's Supreme Court stuff in there, right? But on a non-election year, we'll have pieces in there on the economy, on foreign policy. Um, certainly COVID's been a big piece of the puzzle over the last, um, you know, six months. So the short answer to your question is, you know, we, we have editors who read this stuff and make a judgment about, uh, whether whether we think it's a good fit for the page on that particular day. Great. Thank you very much. Now I get to share in the fun with our cadets. Um, so with that, I'm going to throw it over to Pedro and Luke for their questions. Hello, Mr. Bevan. Uh, thanks for joining us today, and thank you for all the work you do with Real Clear Politics. Luke and I will be presenting questions from the student body here at West Point, while also talking about topics that we have on our mind. So with that, I'll turn it over to Luke for our first question. All right. Thanks, Pedro. So as we now move closer to the election, uh, we are now less than a month from election day, have any recent events caused a shift in support toward either presidential candidate in swing states or districts, and have any down ballot candidates had to adjust uh, in the eleventh hour, as as we call it? Well, good question, Luke, and and again, thanks you guys for doing this. I appreciate you participating, and it's it's a, an honor to talk to you, and I want to thank you all for your service too. By the way, it seems like the the most recent round of polls that we've gotten just in the last few days have shown a, a shift toward Joe Biden. It seems to be, uh, you know, related to the debate and the debate performance. Um, President Trump was largely viewed, even by some in his own camp, to have sort of gone a little bit overboard on the interruptions. And as Chris Christie said, uh, you know, came out a little bit too hot. Now, we're still trying to uh, waiting for more data on the big event, which was his diagnosis with with COVID-19, which took place, you know, I think. Friday morning at 1 a.m. or something, spent the weekend in Walter Reed. It's uncertain how that is going to play into all this. I do, you know, I, I sort of frame it like uh, there are the tangible things we know and the intangibles, right? The tangible thing is we've got a month till election day and he's going to be off the trail for two weeks. And this is a candidate who even more than any in recent memory is, is sort of the irreplaceable to how this campaign operates in terms of doing the events and energizing his base, communicating with voters, 
Um, and he's only going to be able to do a certain piece of that from from the confines of the White House. So the Trump campaign, that's obviously not a good place for the Trump campaign to be. They're scrambling and mobilizing to try and fill those gaps and do what they can to keep the the MAGA train on the tracks until uh, until the conductor can get back on board. Um, the intangible aspect of this is, you know, does Trump's diagnosis generate any sympathy for him among, you know, swing voters or less ideological voters? Does the fact that COVID is now back in the news cycle in a very, very big way, it has been one of his weak points, uh, Trump's handling of, of the COVID crisis over the last six months, um, does that is that a negative for him? We don't know the answer to those questions yet. We'll probably get a better understanding of that. As far as the down ballot stuff goes, Mitch McConnell, the Senate is really, really close right now. And that's where I think a lot of the attention is. Um, Democrats have raised uh, just an inordinate amount of money in a lot of these races and are well positioned. Um, I think if Joe Biden ends up winning by a lot and, and having uh, as good of a night as the polls currently reflect that he might have, that a lot of this Democrats will win a lot of those Senate races and, and probably even take control of the Senate. So, but there are still, you know, still a month ago, and a lot of these Senate candidates are in the middle of their debates right now. We've got a situation in North Carolina that's not looking so good for Democrats. One of their candidates is is embroiled in a sex sexting scandal. Uh, and I suspect there's probably a couple more twists and turns left in the presidential race. All of this is taking place in the context of voters already casting their ballots, whether they're voting early, whether they're voting absentee. Um, you know, millions of people have already cast ballots and will continue to cast ballots as we move forward. By the time the next presidential debate or the final presidential debate takes place, you know, there will be an awful lot of people who have already cast their ballot. Thank you, sir. There seems to be more election forecasters and prognosticators in 2020 than in past years. What do you attribute to this growing class of analytical commentators in our elections and have any influence to you? Well, so that's a that's probably the Nate Silver effect, right? Um, you know, we started the poll average, as I mentioned, when we started Real Clear Politics. Uh, there obviously have been some folks who have have copied us uh, and there are other organizations that currently do poll averages. But Nate Silver was the one who sort of became the first, I think, nationally recognized data journalist, right? Um, and we've since seen a proliferation of data journalists and data journalism, you know, programs in places like the New York Times and, and others. Um, look, I think by and large, it's it's not a bad thing. Although, as I as I mentioned earlier, I do have concerns that with how some of this stuff is being presented. Right, polling is still an art. Uh, as much as it's a science. At the end of the day, pollsters have to decide, make educated guesses about who's going to turn out on election day, right? You can call, you, you can make all the phone calls, you can get 500 or 1,000 respondents, but at the end of the day, you have to you have to basically say, okay, you know, how do I extrapolate this to what's going to happen on election day? Um, and that's why there's a, that's why there's a margin of error. That's why, you know, uh, there there is, still you know some uncertainty there and my problem if i have a, a gripe is is that data journalism has purports to be scientific in a way that you just simply can't be about these things right i mentioned you know the idea that hillary clinton had a 99.255 percent chance to win that race i mean it's just silly to talk about elections that way they because they do not operate that way um and so that's my biggest gripe and i think i think voters are and news consumers are taken in by that and and they assign to that right when they see decimal places uh and they hear about you know monte carlo simulations and all these things they uh they are sort of wowed by that and and therefore uh assign a level of certainty to that which it simply shouldn't and, and couldn't have and so um but but i look you know we've been We've also had data journalist Sean Trendy, who's who's our senior elections analyst, is one of the smartest guys, and he is, you know, um, just finished his PhD, knows stats, he does all sorts of crazy stuff with numbers. Um, David Byler is a guy we hired who uh, worked for us for a couple of years. So I, I think analyzing data is good by and large. I just, you know, I worry that that voters don't sometimes don't have the same background and and don't interpret things or, or misinterpret things. Um, and so that, I think, is is a bit of a problem. Thank you, sir. So that kind of actually leads right into our next question, um, which is when publishing polling data, 
Do you consider the effect it may have on the outcome of the election? And do you think, in your view, are voters more or less likely to show up to the polls uh, based on their expectation of the results? So that's a good question. I mean, the short answer to the first part of that question is no, we don't take that into account. Again, if it's a if it's a reputable firm, polling firm, if it's if you know, certainly if we've already included them in our average and they come out with a, a number that, you know, may be an outlier, it, it's it's not our job to make a decision to say, hey, suddenly, you know, this number looks funny to us or I mean, uh, you know, the numbers are the numbers and we sort of put them in our average and, and you know, the public's going to decide that. Now, do those numbers um, affect the public's view of things? And, and I think the answer is yes. I think there is a lot of attention, probably too much attention focused on, on the horse race aspect of things uh, because it's easy, right? It's easy for reporters, instead of going out and knocking on a hundred doors and talking to a hundred voters in Ohio, they can just look at a poll and say, oh, you know, write a story off of that. Um, so it's, I think it's easy for, for reporters to cover the horse race. And, and, um, I do think that influences voters to a certain degree. I, I would argue that Hillary Clinton lost 2016. She only lost it by what, a hundred thousand votes in three States. Had the coverage been, you know, showing that election more competitive as opposed to the, you know, she's got this in the bag. It's it's well within the realm of possibility that that voters would have been her voters would have been more energized to turn out, uh, you know, in those states. And she may not have lost that election. So I, I think it could have played a part in, in that. And I think it certainly does um, play a part if people think that their vote's not going to count or this race is already decided one way or the other, because based on what the polls are saying, that that, that absolutely plays into it. But I do it sounds odd for me to say this as the proprietor of a political website that focuses a lot on the horse race. Um, I do think the horse race gets an inordinate amount of coverage, probably too much coverage. Um, and, and as a result, I mean, that's what the public sort of is, is, you know, consumes on a daily basis. Thank you, sir. In our previous segment mentioned sort of the phenomenon occurring with various voting behavior and in this election, the demographics of the U S and, you know, even before now are constantly changing. Are there trends in the distribution of partisanship among certain demographics? And do you foresee any demographics voting against their typical party affiliations in 2020? Uh, another good question, Pedro. Um, look, I when, when Obama was elected, right, we were treated to the idea that there was the, um, the emerging democratic majority and that demographics were destiny. And, and by that, you know, Democrats were sort of destined to to win national elections and, and have control on it. It didn't really turn out that way. And it hasn't turned out that way. Now, are there shifts in the electorate? Absolutely. Um, you know, we see this youngest generation is probably the most progressive generation that we've ever had. And they are primed, I think, to a certain degree to vote against, against Donald Trump this election. But the question is, you know, how many of them are, you know, young voters are notoriously difficult to turn out. Uh, Democrats have been working on that for, for some time. Um, <clears throat> I, I think Donald Trump actually will probably win more of the African-American vote. He got 8% last time. I think he's going to win more than that this time. And that would make him the, you know, winning is that would be the most that a Republican presidential candidate has won in, you know, a number of cycles. I think he's actually the poll show I'm doing very well among Hispanic voters particularly in a place like Florida. So there's sort of an ebb and flow uh, to this. One, one of the big shifts we've seen just in uh, this, in the past four years is seniors have changed their, you know, that's a Trump, uh, that's a, a demographic that Trump won by seven points in 2016. He's now trailing by anywhere from 15 to 20 points, depending on the poll. And a lot of that has to do with events and circumstance, right? It's a, it's a, it's a group that's been disproportionately impacted by COVID. Um, they don't think he's done a good job handling COVID, and therefore they've shifted their allegiances just in the last four years based on that. So I do think, you know, Republicans sort of writ large, I think Republicans need to continue to reach out to minority voting groups and, and expand their expand their appeal there because, you know, obviously the nation is getting more diverse. Um, that's it's that's going to continue. And I think Democrats also, they, you know. If the just take the African-American vote, if that vote were to actually shift, if African-Americans were to shift their voting preferences 
from where they currently are, right? 90 to 95% uh, Democrat by five percentage points or 10 percentage points, that would be a massive sea change. Um, and that would pose real, real problems for them. Um, I would also say, you know, sort of geographically, right? We're seeing the country change. We're seeing Texas and Georgia that are moving sort of from red states to purple to eventually being blue. Um, we're seeing other states in the upper Midwest that are, are moving from sort of, you know, uh, blue to, to purple and, and maybe red. You know, and and this happens. I mean, my my Washington bureau chief Carl Cannon, uh, you know, always talks about how competitive California was. You know, a few decades ago, it was it was uh, it was one of the most competitive states in the country. Um, just a just a couple of cycles ago, people were always talking about Missouri and how that was the bellwether, and however Missouri went, um, and Ohio, and these are now red states. So you see these shifts that are taking place as as the country gets more sort of polarized and divided and, and there are um, uh, migration patterns that are taking place. I guess that's a long rambling answer to your question, but I think this, this stuff is constantly changing. I don't think you can actually, um, I think both parties have to continue uh, to work to earn the, uh, the support of, of various voting groups. Otherwise uh, they'll end up uh, you know, on the short side of things. So, so just kind of going off of that a little bit, um, in 2016, we kind of saw a change in the Republican Party, where it was a battle kind of between the the Trump, the party of Trump versus previously the party of Romney and, and McCain. Um, so where do you see kind of party realignment going uh, in 2024? And what do you see the Republican Party becoming after Donald Trump? So that is a great question. And it is a subject of much speculation, right? I'm sure many books and and PhD dissertations will be written on this subject. Um, because it, I mean, 2016 was really fascinating in the sense that you had this character in Donald Trump, never been elected to office, never, right, never uh, been a political figure, come in and, and in the span of uh, 18 months, basically, you know, do a hostile takeover, maybe not so hostile, of the Republican Party, to sort of refashion it in his image. I mean, people forget, this was a man who stood on the debate stage in South Carolina and said that George W. Bush had lied us into war in Iraq. That was unthinkable that, that any Republican would say that. He has utterly transformed the party's thinking on issues like free trade, um, you know, into a more protectionist sort of, he would call it a, a fair trade and reciprocal, reciprocal trade on foreign policy, right? Interventionism um, or non-interventionism is what I think his supporters would call it, uh, bringing troops home. And these were Republican orthodoxy for 40, 50 years. And with sort of one fell swoop, uh, Trump was able to tap into, I think, this populism this nationalism and populism in a way that, I mean, think about it. The Republican field in 2016 was as wide and deep as we've ever seen. You had former senators, former governors. These were not, these were accomplished people. They were smart people. They had been in politics a long time, but Trump was able to speak to, to voters in a way that none of these other folks could. And, and I think by doing that, um, the movement that he started, I think has fundamentally changed the Republican party. I do not think it's going to go back. Uh, you know, when he's off the scene, I think his movement, I think the Republican Party is now the party of sort of working class voters. I think it will have a, a real populist element to it going forward. And, and I don't know, um, you know, exactly what that portends for, for the party itself, because there are certainly, uh, you, you have this, this anti-Trump wing of the party. It's pretty small, in my opinion, um, although they have you know, sort of a loud megaphone. Um, so I, I, I guess it will depend on who is able to step forward and, and carry that mantle uh, moving forward. Could it be someone like uh, Nikki Haley? People have mentioned Tim Scott, you know, obviously Mike Pence will be a part of that. There are plenty of Republicans, I think, that, that, that have fully um, acclimated themselves to the new, uh, some of the new policy aspects of of uh, the Republican Party now that Trump has instituted that. Um, so we'll have to see. But it is a fascinating question. There's, there's no doubt about it. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see what the Democrats do, too. They've now I mean, these 
we just talked about how parties are shifting and changing. I mean, Republicans went effectively now to the, they're the party of sort of working people. Um, and Democrats have become the party of, you know, um, of the sort of well-educated, uh, suburban, uh, well-to-do, um, folks. And it's, it's, that, that is not their traditional role either. So the parties have kind of reversed, uh, to a certain degree. And the question is whether they continue that or they, they somehow sort of try and get back to revert back to where they were before. Sure. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, for that analysis. And my, my next question, uh, just kind of want to pick your brain or any insight you can offer on, um, anything regarding, uh, measuring, uh, the military vote or just any sort of insight or your experiences with, trying to explain voting behavior within the military. Yeah. Well, I mean, you guys would probably know a lot more about this than I do. <laughs> I mean, I, look, I, I did find it interesting. We saw that poll in the Military Times a couple of weeks ago that showed that, you know, Trump had had lost support. Um, I don't remember if it showed Biden leading or not, but, but it was certainly a, a, a shocking number. Um, you know, obviously, Trump's campaign and Trump supporters would say that, uh, that you know the military's traditionally voted, I think, Republican, and and Trump's campaign would say, look, uh, Trump loves the military. The military loves him. He's done, you know, the VA, um, you know, fixed the VA and, and all these things. He's rebuilt the military. He's given tons of of resources and, and attention. Um, I'm going to be interested to see. Uh, we, I mean, we won't know right until until we know, which will be on November 4th or maybe even a little bit later than that, depending on how you know, ballots are counted to whatnot, but to see whether there was a real shift in the military vote this time around and whether, you know, any of that support for Trump wanes, uh, it, I guess it depends on, on the final outcome of, of the vote overall. I think Biden is generally well liked uh, by one of the things that's different about this election, right? There are plenty of echoes, but, but there are some differences. And one of the biggest ones is, is that Joe Biden is not Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton was famously unlikable. And there were plenty of people who who didn't like Trump, but they really didn't like Hillary and they just couldn't bring themselves to vote for her. So they, they decided to pull the lever for Trump. Well, now those same people that might not have been, uh, you know, like Trump in the first place, they may be in that exact same situation. And, and now their choice is, is not Trump versus Hillary, it's Trump versus Biden. And, and folks have, I think Biden is a known quantity. He's much more likable. He's, he's, um, and I think because of that reservoir of and history of being Obama's vice president, being in the Senate for so long, Trump really hasn't been able to paint him as as being, you know, sort of a, a radical or a vessel for the radical left. So, uh, you know, as far as the military vote goes, though, I'll be I'll be really, really interested to see uh, what the final tally is there, because, um, you know, the Trump Trump campaign thinks they're their support with the military is solid, but we've seen some signs that maybe that's not the case. One last question. So um, this is regarding uh, Real Clear Politics. So is there anything you'd like to do within the company as the media landscape continues to evolve? Uh, and is there anything in the works already? Uh, basically, is there anything you'd like to do, um, but can't right now for some reason, or just really want to do in the future? Well, um, yes and no. I mean, look, the, the media landscape right now uh, is, I mean, it, we're in a tough business, right? Um, if you don't have a billionaire that owns your company or is supporting you, like the Washington Post or the Atlantic or some of these other places, um, and we're a small independent, you know, operation. So um, if you don't have that, it, it's, it's a very tough business. And we've seen how those economic realities have, have uh, impacted you know, newspapers and magazines and, and over the course of the last, you know, five to 10 years, if not longer. So I think we're in a good spot, right? Because we have a pretty strong brand um, and uh, we we have sort of broad appeal and we've managed to build a pretty loyal following. So that puts us in a, in a good position. We're also, uh, from, a, from a business perspective, we're still a relatively small operation and we are a sort of hybrid aggregator and publisher. So we have we have some people on staff who write for us. I mentioned Carl Cannon. We've got Sean Trendy. We've got a couple of reporters that are covering the White House, but we don't have you know hundreds and hundreds of reporters like you know Politico or The Hill or the New York Times, some of our competitors. Um, I think that's been one of the reasons that we've been able to succeed and and 
um, over time uh, is because we have a pretty pretty efficient business model. Um, but moving forward, I mean, look, at the end of the day, I would love to I would love to do more um, original reporting um, because I think the country is crying out for objective. You know, I think in some ways the media has become so uh, partisan. Um, I think everywhere I turn, people, you know, continue to ask, where can I go to get just just straight information? Right. And and we're in a position to, to really be able to, to fill that space. And so that's one of the things that I think we want to focus on um, in the coming um, in the coming years is doing some more of that. But that requires, you know, requires capital. I also want to do more video journalism because I think that's another area where, uh, you know, a lot of people are consuming their their news and information. Um, and quite frankly, some of the best stuff that's been done over the past six months on uh, it was or some of these independent reporters that are on the ground. And, you know, when these riots were taking place in Minneapolis or Kenosha or Portland or Seattle. And and I think that's a really important function uh, for for the country to, to be able to to see um, sort of unfiltered reports from from on the ground. So I think we're going to look into doing more of that. We're talking to a couple of those folks uh, right now. So, um, look, I think I, I'm still excited about the future of journalism, even though I think it's I think the public trust in the institution of, of media and journalism has you know, gone in the tank uh, over the past uh, past few years and, and maybe rightfully so. But from our perspective, I mean, I think we're filling a, a real need and, and we'd like to be able to do more of that moving forward. Well, Tom, we're going to work to get you on your way to your other engagements, but I just want to say on behalf of the entire Department of Social Sciences, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a true pleasure listening to you. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's, it was a real honor. And again, thank you all for, for what you do and for your service. And I would encourage listeners to keep an eye on Real Clear Politics as we move towards the election in November. Scott, Pedro, and Luke, thank you very much as well. And that is a wrap for this episode of The Social Podcast. Thank you again. To Tom Bevan, Major Taylor, Dr. Limbacher, and Cadet Santiago Bonilla and Stoner for such a great conversation. There's certainly plenty to watch as the election draws near, and we'll keep our eyes peeled to real clear politics as things develop. As a reminder, the views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not reflect the official positions of West Point, the United States Army, or the Department of Defense. Remember to subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts and spread the word. Please don't hesitate to reach out to us at socialresearchlab at westpoint.edu to let us know what you think and what you want to hear next. Special thanks, as always, to the West Point Band for providing our music. <laughs>